Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning. I I have been um, acutely aware this weekend, um, over the last several days, and certainly going into this week, of all of the high school, college, graduate school graduations that are going on um, in my own home, in my own family, extended family, church family, um, and certainly in my uh, community. And so I would just like for all of us to join in a concert of prayer for each and every one of these people who are graduating for each and every one of these, you know, institutions and stages of life. So for, you know, for all the high school graduates out there, college graduates, graduate school graduates, and, and, you know, the concentric circles of relationships that go out from there. So parents and grandparents, teachers, tutors, mentors, coaches, friends, pastors, youth pastors, camp counselors, VBS directors, like everybody who's been responsible for raising up those who now walk across the stage and move a tassel from one side to the next and, you know, enter a different stage and sometimes arena of life. I was acutely aware of, let's describe it as the generational consequences of sin at a at a recent um, graduation event where I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just watching the pain um, that exists at a table where you know, this young man should be the center of his family's joy and his great accomplishments academically. But the reality is at that table are seated um, multiple sets of parents. And um, it's hard for that kid to know who to hug first when he returns to the table or to whom does he, you know, hand the uh, the certificate of accomplishment that he's just received at the front of the room. Um, kids are dealing with a lot. And when I say kids, you know, I'm not just talking about uh, kid kids. I'm, I'm talking about adult kids. There's a lot to deal with because of the generational sin in our families. And so let's be aware of that. And if you're in one of those complicated family systems, don't be the person who makes it more complicated. Uh, go ahead and acknowledge to the student that you know it's complicated um, and that there is a sufficiency of grace. You don't need to be the first person that gets to touch the certificate. You don't need to be the first person that gets a hug. Tell them that in advance. Um, relieve them of that kind of, of pressure uh, and allow them to enjoy the day. Let me lift up also in terms of prayer concerns today, author Anne Voskamp. Um, many of you know and appreciate her, her writings and her work. I'm thinking it was like three weeks ago now, might be a month ago now, that she posted that her dad uh, had been killed in a farm accident in the same way that her younger sister had died, um, actually in the same farmyard. Um, And now we are uh, learning that Anne is fighting for her own life against an infection that doctors are having a very difficult time identifying. So let us be praying for an accurate and timely diagnosis for the restoration of her health and for the ongoing 
uh, travails in, in her extended family. Let us also be praying today for the people of Israel and the people living in Gaza. As the latest war between Hamas and Israel enters its second week, uh, the weekend of bombing was intense. Um, you are going to hear all kinds of reports about that from the secular news media. And obviously, everyone has an opinion about you know who's right and who's wrong and the righteousness of retaliation and on and on and on. The Israeli military has carried out very heavy airstrikes today on the Gaza Strip, um, uh, saying that it has destroyed 15 kilometers or nine miles of militant tunnels and the homes of nine Hamas commanders. Tomorrow, God willing, we're going to have Pastor Stephen Curry with us live from Jerusalem to talk about what's going on there. Up next, I've got Dr. Jack, uh, Zach Jenkins. We are going to cover some of the COVID headlines of the day. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University is back with us today. Zach, welcome back. Good morning. Oh, and good and good morning to our four-legged furry friend. Who is that that we hear? Uh, we actually just got a dog a couple weeks ago. Her name's Noelani. Hello, Noelani. They love to hear their name, you know, so there you go. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. Okay, that's so fun. Um, all right. Bye-bye to mask mandates. Uh, so it feels to me as if the world, at least the part of the world I live in, has turned a corner. Yeah, it's it's actually uh, quite encouraging to see some of that stuff disappearing. Um, and honestly, the data has been trending this way for a little while and there, there is a little bit of a debate about like why people waited so long to pull the trigger on this. That, that's that's a fair discussion external to this. But I think the good news is at least a lot of these things seem to be ending, if not right now, then certainly by June. And uh, is this because people like you feel like we have reached herd immunity? And if so, remind us what that is. Uh, so. Herd immunity, of course, is where a large majority of people have either been vaccinated or uh, naturally infected, and so that decreases the rate of transmission. Um, I would say from my perspective, I don't know that we necessarily have reached herd immunity, and I'll provide kind of the reason why I think we're pulling some of these things back. If we look back last year, we learned very quickly, and the data definitely lines up with this, that the virus doesn't like heat. And so it really slowed down transmission throughout the summer. And what that really means for us is that we aren't expecting a large number of cases to probably hit here in June or July. Um, so I've been saying since about January, a lot of this will probably fizzle out by July, and it seems to certainly be aiming that direction. Um, now, certainly, I, I think it helps that we have vaccinations. We've already seen that impact some of our numbers. Um, we have seen natural infection be a contributor as well to that. And so I think all those things together kind of put us in a good situation. Okay, so talking about vaccinations, let's jump into a number of headlines related to vaccinations. Um, Pfizer is asking for full approval. Um, how does that differ from the kind of approval they have now? So they currently have an emergency use authorization or an EUA, which they still have to do a lot of the studies that would normally be necessary to receive a full FDA approval 
but there are a few pieces of red tape that are removed to streamline the rollout of a medication under these kind of emerging circumstances. The difference between that and a full FDA approval is there's a more um, laborious process of doing a lot of paperwork, showing proof of concept, um, going back and showing like your, your clinical trials all the way from the ground up. And some of that data was present before, but now they have actually kind of like gathered everything together, um, summarized things a bit better, and they've also completed a lot of other documentation, paid a lot of extra fees and that kind of thing. And so that's where that FDA approval ends up coming in. Now, what that means for us is, you know, a lot of people have been saying, well, this isn't an FDA approved medication or, or vaccine. Well, there's a good chance it will be. Uh, so the, the question I think we're going to have to ask ourselves is, does that change how the public ends up perceiving things? Mm. Maybe. Um, all right, let's talk about mixing vaccines. Um, I, I've got to tell you, this was a, this was a new, new story to me. Yeah. So, you know, in the United Kingdom, one of the big things that they've been doing for a while now uh, as they've been rolling out vaccines is they rather than doing these you know, preset regimens of saying, like, you get one dose of this and then you'll get the second dose of that same thing a number of weeks later in the UK, in order to expand the spread of uh, vaccines throughout the population, they said, well, you know what we'll do? We'll, we'll give you a dose and then maybe you'll get a dose of something else a little bit later on. So if you had one of the mRNA vaccines like Pfizer or Moderna, what they may say is you could get an AstraZeneca on top of that. Um, there are a lot of people, myself included, that were really skeptical of that approach uh, because we just didn't have the data to run with. And recently now we have this data starting to emerge that indicates that uh, combining the vaccines may actually result in more of those common kinds of side effects that we've heard about. So things like fever, uh, headache, fatigue, all those kinds of things that the uh, mRNA vaccines in particular have been pretty famous for. Seems the incidence is higher if you're mixing and matching vaccines. Yeah, which I don't know. I, I think we've all been told, like, right, don't mix your medicines, like follow the instructions, do what you're supposed to do. So it seems a little surprising to me that somebody ever thought this was a good idea. But, but you know, I'm not in charge. So um, Dr. Zach and I are going to take a very brief break. We're going to come back. We're going to deal with other headlines. And yes, those of you who are texting in, I will tee up some of those questions to Dr. Zach as well. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. The perfect puppy to always be right by my side. Perfect puppy to find those toys. That is in honor of Zach's family having a new puppy. Because, you know, we are here to bless the whole family. Um, so, Zach, let's talk about um, young people and vaccines. You know, I don't know what's going on where you live, but um, where I live, this is a really robust conversation in the community. Very, very few parents where I live interested in having their kids vaccinated. And yet it's already a, a pretty robust conversation related to schools uh, in the fall. So what, what's going on with all of this? So I, I, right now, the data um, has supported an FDA approval of Pfizer being used in children down to the age of 12. And if we do, I know we've talked about this before, but if we do look at viral transmission, um, it's unlikely to occur, uh, far, far less likely in those under the age of 12, based on the data we have available. So that includes, you know, child to child, includes child to adult. There just doesn't seem to be a lot of transmission in kids. 
So what that means from us from a public health standpoint is, is a good question. So, you know, it, it's fair to say, like, maybe those who are uh, like a teenage age might actually make sense to receive a vaccine. They actually seem to respond very strongly to it. So you even have to ask the question is two do are two doses really necessary? Would one dose be sufficient? We don't know yet. Um, but as far as like a public health policy, there's a big debate going on right now. Some school systems, including some teachers associations, want to demand that to be a thing. Uh, it's it's mm -hmm. going to be something we're going to be seeing moving forward. I, I don't think we're, we're finished with this conversation by a long shot. Yeah, I don't either. Okay, so we have a, a listener who's asking, I think, a question that is probably uh, has risen for many of us. You know, we get a lot of conflicting um, information in terms of, okay, so I've been, let's just assume I've been vaccinated. Mm -hmm. um, can I still get COVID? If I get COVID, uh, is it going to be as bad as it would have been? Um, or now, you know, or can I still spread the disease? Can I not spread the disease? Um, Dr. Fauci has now recently said having the vaccination is a dead end for the disease. That implies that if you get it, it's not going to hurt you or anybody else. That doesn't seem right. Like what, what's, what's true? What, what yeah, is a vaccinated so, person, you know, like where does the vaccinated person stand in the midst of all this? So I guess let's take a step back and talk about the study supporting some of these things. So originally when these were approved, the data was all about prevention of severity of illness as well as hospitalization and death. So like that's what these things were approved off of. And they were shown to overwhelmingly do that very well. Um, since then, though, they've actually been able to show there is a decrease in uh, the transmission of the virus overall. So that data comes right out of Israel where they have a real significant uptake in vaccine. It, it's like greater than 70% of the population has been vaccinated. And out of Israel, that data with, with Pfizer in particular has really shown us that there's not any real occurrence of asymptomatic disease. What that then means is we're not seeing viral transmission. So we have a reduction in transmission and a reduction in severity of illness. Can you still get COVID? Yes. We've had breakthrough infections in the US they have been very rare. So if it happens, the incidence has decreased fairly dramatically. Um, the other thing to consider is when it has happened, and at least this the FDA's data that they have available, the number of severe cases has been very, very small. Uh, there, there will only be a handful of deaths associated with COVID in, in vaccinated individuals, and there have been a, a handful of hospitalizations. So it's a dramatic reduction compared to what we saw before. Okay, um, let's um, let's pivot and talk about the uh, talk about what's going on in India. Um, it does seem as if there maybe is some positive news in terms of a reduction yeah. in cases, specifically in Mumbai. But what else are you hearing out of India? India is unfortunately being hit with a lot of things right now. So we have the tropical storms that they're they're going to start dealing with, and in a lot of these areas, they're already being ravaged with the virus and some of the other. Um, policies that are currently in place. But then there are also black market entities now that are doing things like taking fire uh, fire extinguishers, painting them to look like oxygen tanks and selling them. Mm. So people are being scammed and taken advantage of in some instances. That's one thing that was recently just found and there have been some other things that have been discussed as well that, that are happening from like the black market end of things. But as far as... Uh, cases right now, it's still kind of rolling through India pretty significantly at large. 
Uh, and they are actually seeing a significant number of deaths more than any other country in the world has really seen per day. So they're, they're setting records in all the wrong ways. Um, I'm always I'm always amazed when uh, people in the Western world, specifically, you know, let's just say the United States, but other places as well, um, have the expectation that the the same kind of um, access to very clean, very sterile, uh, high-end medical care is available everywhere around the world. When you see the pictures that are associated with these places where there are vaccine deserts, um, I think mm-hmm. you are reminded of just how dirty and unsanitary um, and rural and remote many people in the world live. And so talk with us a little bit about vaccine deserts around the world. So one of the big things that we've seen with vaccine rollouts is it's really been focused in areas that have a lot of financial uh, capital. So, you know, if you look at the United States, you look at Europe, you look at China, that's where they've actually had a bigger rollout of vaccines. But then when you look at places like uh, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, not only are our medical resources slim to begin with, where people are miles and miles away from the closest hospital or medical facility, the other issue we run into is transportation of vaccines and things like that, where they don't have the ability to refrigerate easily. And then you consider the fact that the vaccine supply hasn't really made its way down there to, to top everything off. They're, they're really struggling. And so many people in these countries are very frustrated right now. Many medical providers in these countries are very frustrated. Um, another, another element, we talked about the black market earlier. This is the reality of what happens. So we complain about the FDA a lot in the United States at times. But in some of these countries, what happens is when they get medications of any sort, including vaccines, they get sold duds. They're actually there's nothing in them, and then this stuff transitions around the the black market. That includes things like chemo. So people are are taking chemotherapy, they're taking vaccines, you name it, and they're not getting an expected effect because there's no regulatory oversight of it. So that is really the unfortunate situation that significant parts of the world are facing. Zach, um, as always, thank you so much. Thank you for what you do each and every day on the front lines uh, of of healthcare in your own community. Thank you for the teaching that you do at Cedarville and thank you for joining us to keep us up to date on specifically COVID headlines, but you know, we range about a little bit. (laughs) Absolutely happy to be here. We appreciate it. That's Dr. Zach Jenkins. Uh, We got to take a brief break for Greg Laurie's Knowing God and then we'll be right back. Is that the eye of the tiger, Paul? Of course it's the eye of the tiger. Oh, such a good song. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> okay, I'll stop. So we have quite a tiger tail out of Texas. Good job, Paul. Always there. Uh, you're always there for us, man. We I try. I it. try. It's so good. So uh, quite the tiger tail out of Texas. Officers were seeking to arrest a fugitive who had failed to appear on a 2017 murder charge when, uh, instead of being able to arrest that individual, they saw a tiger, Bengal tiger, in the man's backyard. The back, uh, the man took the tiger and fled in an SUV and thus begun a nearly weeks-long manhunt, shall we say tiger hunt, in Metro Houston. So while we do not know 
uh, the full rest of the story. We can report that the man is in custody uh, on big bond money, and the tiger has been turned over to authorities. The nine-month Bengal tiger, nine-month-old Bengal tiger, uh, is... um, Who's estimated, you know, it's estimated that this is like, you know, he's going to like reach like 600 pounds. He's going to be big when he's fully grown. Anyway, he is being transferred to a big cat sanctuary um, and all as well. So it's it's one of, you know, for the tiger, at least it's a happily ever after story. Not so much for the fugitive. Um, But it got me thinking, Okay, so here's a headline of the day. Um, Because we think about. I don't know. Tigers in scripture, right? Okay, so be sober-minded. Here is a warning. Here's a warning. This is 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. That would be like the full-grown 600-pound nasty kind uh, looking for someone to devour. But then we also think of Jesus as likened unto a lion. Revelation 5.5. Jesus is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He has at this point uh, in Revelation entered the throne room of God. Previously, John was weeping because there was no one found who was worthy to open the seals, um, which kept a scroll hidden from everyone. And upon seeing the lion, an angel then announces that one is worthy um, of opening the seals. The, The worthy one has arrived. When we think of Jesus as a lion, lots of our, uh, lots of us, our minds go to the works of C.S. Lewis, right? The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Well, who is the lion? Aslan. And we recognize that Aslan is not a tame lion, but he is good. So uh, when you hear people talking about the lion that was loose in Houston for a week, uh, why don't you see if you can get Jesus into the conversation of the day. Talk about the Lion of Judah. Talk about his worthiness. Take people to Revelation 5 5 or you know conversely talk about the way the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour and uh, and talk with others about the need to guard our hearts and guard those uh places of vulnerability in our life okay there you go that's my uh lion connection today to the headline we got to take a brief news break and then we're going to be back with dr adam carrington from hillsdale college what are your hobbies What do you spend your Saturday afternoons doing? Now, one more question. Are you putting the same effort into connecting with your team that you're pouring into your favorite pastime? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. We all need time to rest, relax, and do the things we like best. But here's an idea. Why not do it with your team as well? Take time to find out what your son or daughter likes and do it with them. Or if you can't find some common ground, Explore a new activity together. The time you invest in your team will be abundantly rewarding. And who knows, you just might find a new hobby. Mark Gregson is devoted to helping parents of struggling teens. For more helpful parenting resources, go to ParentingTodaysTeens.org, ParentingTodaysTeens.org, or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Dr. Adam Carrington is back from Hillsdale College. Welcome, sir. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me again. Absolutely. Let's talk about um, the evolution, maybe, realignment of the GOP. 
What what in your view, what's going on? <laughs> yes. And, and it's actually, I think, good to talk about this beyond just personality conflicts, which is maybe doing better than the politicians themselves, which a lot of it's been about loyalty or or uh, uh, ad hominem attacks. But I think a way to look at this broader is there was an old consensus that really originated with Barry Goldwater in the 1960s when he ran for president, really came into focus with Ronald Reagan. And that was a set of certain set of principles, uh, anti-communism, the government is more the problem in many instances than the solution, especially with things like uh, social welfare lower taxes and less regulation for businesses that often also tended to have a, a, a little bit of a antagonism toward unions, public sector and private, and a kind of social, social conservatism that had a religious, that uh, uh, was definitely based in, 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 in Christianity, and that thought that really government was the problem interfering with families. And I think with the the uh, that consensus you're seeing underneath the personality conflicts starting to break down, and part of it is the fact that the Republican Party is starting to look different. It's becoming more and more working class voters that used to be more Democrat, p- voters that used to be more Republican, like middle class, college educated, are, are moving to the Democratic Party. That shift has been amazing if you look from the mid 2000s to now. And what's what's coming with that? There's a bit of a uh, disconnect or a transitioning as far as what the GOP is is arguing for. And, and President Trump really showed that where um, a lot of the policies coming out under or around him sometimes looked like Reaganomics, sometimes looked like the old era. But then his critique of free trade, um, the uh, the the the. Um, movement to uh, away from reforming the social safety net like Medicare and Social Security that have been a big Republican dogma, uh, the willingness to spend a lot of money without really uh, even trying to defend it, although, of course, that happened to some degree before. Uh, I think you're seeing a, a that, that, that the Republican Party is becoming less and less in pra- theory, not just practice, a party of sort of small government, low taxes, and as it starts to realize its more working class environment, it is much more open to a social safety net. Uh, it's becoming less and less anti-union. No, notice that uh, that uh, Marco Rubio recently supported Amazon unionizing, and it's seeing social conservatism as more and more needing the family not to stay out of the family's business, but to financially and otherwise support it. Notice Romney's um, uh, child care plan. And so government is no longer the problem. It really seems like it might be part of the solution for the conservatism that is emerging. And that makes it, uh, it's still distinct from the political left, but that old divide of small, large government really seems to be uh, uh, not as clear and even possibly going away for some of the reasons I just mentioned. So I uh, I listened to a discussion between uh, Dr. Albert Moeller at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and um, uh, oh the new head of the Ethics and Public Policy Center in D.C., uh, Ryan T. Anderson, um, and they touched on this topic. 
and and Ryan Anderson was observing that there's a difference now in function um, between the responsibility of part the parties, the GOP and and the Democratic, um, I guess the DNC. Dem, yeah, um, it, it, the they now function really for the purpose of getting people elected, and sometimes it's just purely personality driven. They're just getting people elected. That's their job um, now in the culture. And then it becomes the job of think tanks to actually produce the policies that are then just handed handed off to these individuals who get elected. Um, and then they advocate for those to be uh, to be driven through um, the legislature and then ultimately into law via the signature of the president. Um, or the things that you know people want to have argued before the Supreme Court. It's often it's not it's not party driven. It's driven by think tanks who are spending full time spending. It, it doesn't matter to them who's in office. They have agendas that they want to see advanced, and those are may or may not be aligned with the actual electorate who elected personalities. They didn't actually elect people on policy positions, but they elected personalities. Does that does that resonate at all with what you're seeing? <laughs> uh, yes, and that's when I started out saying that underneath the personalities, there's these policy things, but I think you've put your finger on. And I, I honestly think that Anderson's take might be too optimistic. Uh, and, and the reason I say that is, uh, the, the lawmakers have offloaded a lot of their thinking to the think tanks who often provide policies, but they've offloaded a lot of their actual legislative power where any of that thinking would matter to the bureaucracy, uh, have delegated their legislative power where a lot of the times the bureaucrats are making the calculations. They're the ones making the actual policies. And you're right that uh, on some hand, this is Congress's fault for doing that. Uh, the think tanks have, have stepped into the gap in the other way, and that creates a disconnect policy-wise with the American people. But I think you're right, too, that to some degree, what, what the American people, in at least the way they've been voting at times, seem to what they seem to demand or want from their elected leaders seems to actually play into this a bit, which is, um, you know, I, I, we talked about this in another context. There seems to be at least two things that an elected leader should be doing. One is voicing the perspective and the uh, of of their voters and really making sure that they feel heard, that they feel articulated. But the other is actually doing things, doing things that are actually helpful concretely in policy. And a lot of the what people have called tribalism in our politics has 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 lowered the demand for actually getting things done in policy and heightened the man of a, a demand of a kind of performative sort of a performance of uh art say of, of of signaling whose side you're on and signaling whose side you're not on and don't like and that a lot of politicians now are getting a lot more play out of getting uh, having a communications team rather than a policy team there was a congressman i won't name newly elected who said who bragged about spending a lot more resources on developing his communications team than his policy side but that shows that there that the personalities the performance on social media 
uh, is, is much more than, say, President Donald Trump or AOC to pick a left and right person. It's becoming kind of the standard. And I think our identity, like politics, left and right, really feels that because what's being demanded is whose side are you on, signal that, and then the other parts of actually governing get sidelined, subsumed, or not paid attention to. So let's take a very brief break. Um, Adam Carrington and I are going to try to demonstrate how some of this plays itself out, even when we are talking about the judiciary, which, you know, is supposed to be apolitical, um, but in fact is not. You know, let us recall that before Donald Trump was elected the first time, he let everybody know who he would recommend um, or who he would nominate in terms of the federal bench. He didn't get those names out of a vacuum. Those people were all vetted by a D.C. think tank. Um, Well, the same is true on the other side of the aisle as well. We're going to talk next about the turnover in the Ninth Circuit. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, the current divide among active judges on the Ninth Circuit Court by party appointment, uh, 16 Democrat appointees, 13 Republican appointees. By my count, there are nine Clinton appointees and three Bush appointees, all eligible to take uh, what's called senior status. Adam Carrington, what is the Ninth Circuit and why should we care that there's this kind of turnover taking place on the federal bench? Well, I think for for several reasons it would be important. But what first I'll say what the Ninth Circuit is, you have basically three levels of courts that hear cases that have to do with uh, federal or national or constitutional issues. District courts, where the trials normally occur, if you don't win there, you can appeal up to the circuit courts, which have jurisdiction over a set of states. So the whole country is divided up into these circuits. And then the next step above circuits are the, is the Supreme Court itself. And why one should care about the circuit courts and not just necessarily the Supreme Court is that the 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 uh, the, the Supreme Court gets about nine to ten thousand petitions to hear cases. They take about seventy pre-pandemic. During the pandemic, they've been taking more like fifty to sixty. So do the math as far as how much the Supreme Court is actually figuring out or taking care of. The rest of those cases are being taken care of at the lower level, including the circuit court. And the Ninth Circuit is the largest as far as territory. A lot of the West, all the West Coast and part of the Western Mountain State interior is is that. And it's kind of been uh, infamous, the Ninth Circuit has been, for being more progressive in the way that it looks at interpreting and applying the Constitution. So uh, uh, it certainly has gotten closer to being uh, close to 50-50 after President Trump's appointments, as you said. But part of this is the fact that we were talking about the dysfunction of politics, uh, the dysfunction I mentioned particularly of Congress. The courts in some ways are the healthiest branch right now. And I don't mean that means they're doing only what they should be doing. In some ways, it means they're doing more than they should because they're stepping into the gap uh, left by other branches. So who gets on these courts in a stalemated Congress not doing much, the presidency struggling in certain respects way, uh, the courts as the healthiest branch often have more power when you have this kind of gridlock. So I think that's why the courts have become such a major uh, 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 flashpoint 
is is how much power they've come to wield given our stalemate, given how unhealthy the other branches are. So that's why these lower courts matter. Most of a lot of the major decisions that don't get to the Supreme Court are going to be decided in these kind of courts, even if we're not paying attention to them. 94 district or trial courts across the country, um, 13 circuit courts. So we're talking today about the Ninth Circuit um, and then one Supreme Court. So I think just having that in mind helps people understand, you know, obviously the Supreme Court cannot hear all of the cases that go before the 13 circuit courts across the country. Um, and, the, and the circuit courts don't hear all the cases that went before the trial courts. Like this is <laughs> this is how it works. Um, only certain things are are heard by a higher court. Um, the Ninth Circuit Court may be experiencing a pretty dramatic turnover in um, in judges. Yes, you said there are about twelve that are going to that could take senior status. I expect now overwhelmingly those are those appointed by Democrats. I expect most, if not all of those, and others have said this as well, will take senior status. So it really probably means that if if the court and the, if the Senate and presidency are still both Democratic when these happen, that it won't necessarily tip the balance of where the court is now. It will mostly reinforce it, although there are a couple fairly old uh, George W. Bush nominees. So that could happen as well. And I think underneath this is you were mentioning uh, in, in before we came, you know, before you went to the break, that there's there's a question of, of the court is supposed to be above politics Mm-hmm. And apolitical, and to and to some degree, this is the way this plays out. Is is arguing as if that's not the case, and there's a lot of people that seem to not believe that. The other is, uh, unfortunately, one of the divides between the parties, and now I think even within uh, the Republican Party, is uh, a, a different. All in addition to different policies, a different approach to how one is supposed to interpret the Constitution. That, um, that 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 those who are uh, more to the political left tend to be more for um, cert- saying that there are certain purposes and outcomes that we've committed ourselves to as a country, and that's how we should interpret the Constitution versus the originalism or textualism of, of much of the political right that says that judges aren't supposed to inject those kind of questions. They should just interpret and apply the law as best they can understand it. Uh, according to the, the the intent when it came out, um, that's also at stake here. Is that, that that unfortunately judging has not has become partisan even in how you interpret and apply the Constitution. All right, uh, SCOTUSmas, which we intend to celebrate with you as the Supreme Court begins rolling out decisions today at 10 a.m. Um, but we would expect the Supreme Court to rule on some 30 cases between or issue opinions on some 30 cases between now and July the 4th. Um, You've got one in particular that we're going to talk about today. Yes, and and we talked about this, I think, briefly when it was argued all the way back in November. And by the way, if a case was argued in November in front of the court and it's still not out, then it's probably a big case where there's a lot of back and forth and debate going on. And that's Fulton versus City of Philadelphia about um, the ability of, of Catholic charities in Philadelphia to operate in cooperation with the city if they don't agree with the city or state's policy on same-sex marriage and and, and like issues. And what's, what's going to be important here is 
Um, the court could more narrowly side with them. Um, I, I think, I think, by the way, I, I, I think the Catholic charity will win, but the court has a decision between doing so on sort sort of more narrow grounds, or they have left open the option of a pretty sweeping protection of religious liberty as a ground to do so. And so the important thing when that comes out is going to be less the result, although that will matter, of course, but how did the court get there? Because it's going to have massive implications for the ongoing debate about the place of, of religious liberty and the place of Christians in the public sphere as uh, the, the sexual revolution plays out in many ways, contrary to, 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 to biblical teaching. I love how much terrain we are able to cover with you, um, and so thank you so very much. We uh, we will count on you to be paying attention to uh, what the Supreme Court uh, hands down today and in the weeks to follow. We uh, we always look forward to visiting with you. That's Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. We'll be right back. All right. Um, hey, if you guys are looking for a roundup of what the Supreme Court is still talking about and a good issues breakdown of that, it's posted today at nationalreview.com. Uh, the, uh, the article that I would recommend to you is the Supreme Court cases to watch as this term ends. Um, all right. We got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. We've got great conversations planned. Uh, Dr. Tom Schreiner will be with us. We're going to talk about hy- how hyperbole dulls our discernment. And then Christopher Ash joins us. And we're going to talk about trusting God in the darkness. It's a, it's a fresh look at the book of Job. Um, and we're going to talk about hope and the reality of hope and the certainty of the hope in which we live in Jesus Christ. Um, so where in the word are you today? I'm going to lead off the next hour in Romans chapter 15, verse 13, if you want to join me there. Always encouraging you to be in the Word of God before you get out there into the world that God so loves. We desire to live in the world as living demonstrations of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so how are we going to do that? Well, we obviously need to be in Christ and have Christ operating in and through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let me encourage you today to um, be that person. Um, Be the person in whom Christ dwells. Be the person in whom God is pleased to dwell by the power of His Holy Spirit cooperate today with the active work of the Holy Spirit that you and I might each be brought uh, into ever greater conformity with who Christ is. Like, let us no longer conform to the patterns and ideas and, and worldviews of this world, but let us be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And how does that happen? Well, we get into the Word of God and we allow the Word of God to get into us. So there you go. There's my full circle recommendation to be in the Word of God today. Let us handle it appropriately uh, as we enter into the conversations of this day, doing so in ways that honor Jesus. Another hour of Mornings with Carmen, up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.